1: Must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 7th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Josh, are you still, are you rained out yet?
1: Man, I am so sick of this rain. Don't even get me. My wife is like going to lose it soon if we don't yeah. stop with the rain.
0: It's too much. Kid related, I, I suspect, to you know, some degree.
1: Mm, you know, it's more dog related than kid related. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you send the kids out in the rain, whatever. The dogs, they don't clean
0: their, their feet well.
1: So. Yeah,
0: right. That's a yeah. bad time to get that second dog, maybe, as it turns out. But who could have known? So today, um, you know, Texas has been in the national media for the last couple of weeks a, a bit. As a result of you know what the closing days of the legislative session looked like, and then more recently for the output of that legislative session, at least, and this is maybe one of the subtexts here, at least the the output that was very visible, yeah, right. uh, to the national eye, and that that legislative session ended on May thirty first. So you know we're 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 just now getting out of the the hot take phase, I think, particularly given the governor hasn't finished deciding or at least telling us what he's going to sign and what he's going to veto or or when exactly he's going to call them back yeah there's still there's still some some things pending out there and and we did very hot takes last week which was sort of the morning after hot take but the the national media focus some of which has also been pretty quick does does raise some interesting questions from the position of being on the ground here so a couple of questions that have come up in, in the media, national media, really in the last couple of days. First, one of which is kind of right in our wheelhouse, is the question of whether the the Texas legislature delivered to Texans, quote unquote, what they want or not. Mm-hmm. And I say it's in our wheelhouse, not because we have no special spiritual insight into what is going on in right. Texas, but because we do a lot of polling, of course. And then another related question is how the politics of the, the legislature's output fit into, if at all, a more national pattern. And we'll talk about those questions more generally, though. though Each one in the, in the last just couple of days has been focused by some national journalism. So, you know, let's start, let's just start right away with the question of whether the Texas legislature delivered to Texans, quote unquote, what they want or not. You know, one of many touchstones. And of course, this, you know, many people have kind of written broadly about this. this. This issue has come up, or we hear a lot about it. I guess because we do polling about what Texans want mm-hmm. and decompose that. But uh, Stacey Marie Ishmael had a an op-ed in the Washington Post. I think published yesterday or maybe maybe late Sunday night, but I think Monday. You know that was you know telegraphed its 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 overall intent with a title called that was called "What's the Matter with Texas Legislators," which is a, a takeoff on the "What's the Matter with Texas" line, which you know is is funny. Well, it's it's
1: funny, but I mean, as you said, you know in terms of forecasting legislators is in parentheses. so it's what's yes. the matter with Texas legislators, legislators right. And I
0: mean but but I mean, I, just to, well that's I just, why it telegraphs so well, right
1: yeah, but I mean and that's and that's the thing. I mean, most of the national press comes at Texas from this kind of an angle. I mean, this has been going on for years, but this idea of you know, what is Texas up to?
0: right well, and I think that's why putting the legislators on there is a nice, you know. Yeah, it's a, a nice nod to that and, and a suggestion that, that we're going to see you know, something a little different. So, you know, the, the big question that comes up again and again in how we think about, you know, Texas's profile and, and the policy environment, the political culture writ mm-hmm. large here is, I think, to what degree does the output of the institutions – and that's why I think that legislators is mm-hmm. important – you know, do the rules, the institutions, the patterns of participation – filter the inputs. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when I see what's the matter with Texas legislators, there's almost you know, you're invited to say, well, it's not necessarily something the matter with Texas. It's the legislators, right? <laughs> right? It's the legislature. And we, and we, you know, that there was a time honored, you know, tradition in Texas going, you know, pretty far back, but you have to go too far back. I mean, this was kind of the, the Molly Ivins line. It's like, yes, Texas is a crazy place, but in part, it's crazy because the political class is crazy, right? Yeah, and that goes back. And for those of you, you know, Molly, I mean, this goes back to the seventies and eighties, right? So, and in the early nineties of writing about Texas. So, you know, how do we how do we take that into account, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so so what is the output that is really what was the output that's getting all the attention? Well,
1: yeah, permitless carry, you know, number one probably. I think stricter abortion laws, you know, probably number two. You know, increasingly. You know, and this is a multi-session story, but an increasingly hostile state government orientation towards mostly city governments, in particular Texas's large cities, and in this case, particularly around police and policing. You know, but that even say, you know,
0: and then the voting stuff,
1: right? And the voting, yeah, definitely the voting stuff the voting stuff as we'll just call it broadly. <laughs> nice. You know, and I'll even say, I'll even kind of add into this, depends on which pieces you're reading. But I mean, there's also the stuff that Texas really hasn't kind of addressed, you know, police brutality, gun violence, right. Medicaid expansion. And the thing we're not even talking about here, which is kind of, you know, I would I would say funny, but more curious is COVID, but which we're not talking about because it's not, wasn't really a central piece to the legislative, you know, packages it made through.
0: Yeah. Not something they did a lot about. I mean, you, I mean, one might say that about Well, I guess it wouldn't be fair to say that about the power outages because they spent a lot of time on it and there was legislative output on that. Mm -hmm. And and it maybe broadly reflected public opinion, but, you know, it does seem to me that one of the things that's interesting is how different the agenda felt at the end of the session as opposed to the very, the run up to it in the very early days.
1: Yeah, I I remember when we were talking before the session about, you know, are they even going to really address that much, you know? Partially because of the COVID protocols and restrictions, but also because, you know, presumably the idea was we've just faced this huge pandemic and this was before the winter storm happened. You know, this idea was what, what are the important things they really need to address and get done? And we're like, are they going to have time for all this other stuff? And it turned out right. they had lots of time for lots of stuff
0: and, yeah. yet, not, and-, and, yet,
1: and yet not enough.
0: Yeah. And ultimately, you know, not not a lot of substantive public health now. I mean, I think somebody would say we did some of the leadership would say, well, we did do a lot on public health. What, most of it had to do with addressing who had the authority to participate in decision making, where the guardrails were for different institutions. And where the guardrails were for liability. For liability. It's you know, and, and not not things that were about public health in and of itself. Right, or the
1: negative, like economic slash health consequences of COVID that our people are still experiencing. Right.
0: So, I mean, I you know, I, so when we look at this question of you know, and we should be fair to the point of the piece that we referenced. I mean, the, the thesis is is ultimately that if you look at public opinion on a lot of these issues we just mentioned on abortion, on Second Amendment slash mm-hmm. you know gun rights to you know put that in, in kind of quotation marks to some degree. Mm-hmm. In particular, and to a lesser degree, but also on the election measures, which I called the voting stuff. But what right. would you mean it was, you know, there was a big bill, SB seven, that would have, you know, ratcheted down, you know, the voting process in a, in a number of different I'd say, ways. I'd say
1: curtailed the freedoms of counties to conduct elections.
0: Yeah, I mean, in other words, it was aimed to, you know, to, to prevent counties from allowing things like extended voting hours, drive-through voting a more, you know, proactive approach to soliciting mail in ballots. Now, that was the bill that got that got killed by the Democrats in the final, you know, hours of the session, essentially. But it's also something that we know is going to be back and something else that legislature spent a lot of time and a lot of and and there was a lot of profiling involved. That is a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of legislatures talked about this a lot in public. And it got a lot of coverage. And so the idea here though is that if you look at you know, the public opinion again on a, particularly on abortion guns and some of the election measures, you know, you don't find majority support for a lot of what we saw come out of the legislature, right? At least not a clear majority support. Not among the entire voting population, no. Okay. So so talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think you know, there's a couple things here that, that kind of I think this discussion is sort of crystallizing for me a little bit, which is, you know. And this is always the case. I mean, I think we we sort of face this in a very pragmatic and functional sense in trying to write polling to assess what happened in the legislative session. And I think what we were sort of struck by in, you know, trying to write our, you know, upcoming poll that would evaluate the session is just the volume of really, you know, we call salient issues that the legislature touched on. And by salient, I mean, you know, is just the sort of things that people probably have some sorts of opinions about. They may not have right. strong opinions about the particular policies that were pursued. But to say that, you know, Texans as a whole, you know, and voters as a whole don't have opinions about voting, about abortion, about, you know, election, con- you know, sorry, election conduct, guns. I mean, these are all things that have been in the, you know, been in the public discussion for a long time. Right. And so th- the fact is, is they touched on a lot of those issues. And so, you know, from our perspective, I mean, one of the hard things is, and I think it's is always is like, you know, when you try to go and say, well, what did the session, what did the legislature, you know, do this session? And you kind of go back and you say like in 2018, Or 2019, you would have said, "Oh, property taxes and public ed." Now it doesn't mean they didn't pass a similar number of bills to this session. They probably passed over, you know, around 1,200 bills. A bunch of those got signed. They had to do with every walk of life, and usually in very minimal ways. But we, but usually we define the session by, oh, it was like this session. Yeah, it was the bathroom bill session. Like would someone say 2015? This session kind of, you know. I don't want to say it defies definition because it's been defined very clearly, but it's being defined as the most conservative, you know, right. legislative session in a generation or ever, or whatever you want to call it. And that's made up of a range of different bills and things. And so when people say, like, oh, did they, you know, did they do what Texans want? I mean, part of it is like, well, I mean, that's not really I don't want to say that's not the point. But it just gets more complicated in that because there's sort of the specifics of what they did, which are very, usually very specific policy things that are either, you know, minimal in nature or have a large cumulative impact, you know, oftentimes. But there's that versus how these are, you know, how these are going to be described and packaged to voters. And ultimately, if you take a step back from this idea of like, you know, do people want or not want drive-through voting? You know, do people... Approve or disapprove of a six-week abortion ban, but also do people, you know, in our case, you know, this is where things get complicated. But do they also want an outright ban on abortion? Well, you know, it's a little bit tricky. You get into those kinds of spaces. Same thing with with the gun issue. You know, do people think it's a good idea for people to be untrained walking around with handguns in public? Not really, you know. But a majority of Republicans do, and this is where we start to get complicated about the who and the what. But I go even further to say that you know, when it comes down to delivering on what the voters want. You know, it's not as though legislators and the governor and whomever are running are going to go back to their voters and say, let me give you a laundry list of policy proposals. What they're going to say is, we increased – you know, we, we made Texas the premier pro-life state in the country. And generally, that's going to be popular with a majority of Texas voters, Texas voters who continually sent – Republicans who are pro-life back to office, both at the local and statewide level. The governor said that he wanted to make Texas a Second Amendment sanctuary state, whatever that means. And that's the point, whatever that means. And the legislature passed a bunch of bills that they could say, presumably, increase the state's places, you know, a pro- as a premier Second Amendment sanctuary state. You know, backing the blue again. That's you know a general statement that ha- that probably polls very well when you talk about it that way. The specifics of those policies, you know, ultimately, I don't want to say don't matter. They matter greatly to individuals, but as in terms of the political space,
0: not right? Really. Yeah, you need to, I mean, as a policy, they make a huge difference. Yeah, and I, I'm
1: absolutely. Very clear as a policy, they make a huge difference. But in a political space, you know what you're basically saying. You know, if I'm a Republican elected official right now, and I'm listening to this national press, which again, and we've said this before, I'll just say real quick: New York Times writes a critical op-ed about you know Texas or Texas Republicans. That's like a badge of honor, no problem. So all this attention in the Atlantic and the Washington Post, New York Times, all these places, you know, it's not like Texas Republicans are sweating this. And the truth is, what they would say is, no, we get to go back to our voters, and we increase border security funding, we increase gun rights. We made Texas, you know, we, we protected the unborn and we backed the blue. What do you want from us? Right.
0: And so, you know, it's important. You're making a distinction there between, you know, basically how they communicate what they did and what they did. And it's not mm-hmm. that they're night and day or they're completely different, but the policies themselves, you know, land in a certain way with those who are very attentive to those policies.
1: I would say they land in a certain, I mean, I would say this, the policies land a certain way with people who are very attentive to those policies, but the way that those policies are going to be described going forward, well, right, I mean. and beyond, is such that even for those people who aren't attentive to the specific policies, they are supportive of the general principles. No, that's, principles, the, point. No, right? that's, that's yeah. the that's the that's yeah. the distinction
0: I'm trying yeah. to clarify. Yeah. Okay. Right. Is yeah. that you know there's there's how the policy itself lands with the people that are attentive, right, and have well developed attitudes about the towards those policies. And then there's people who have a kind of general, more less informed, less attentive, but still, fo- but still formed, right? The difference between and, in and informed attitude towards these things. Says, okay, if they're doing the pro life thing, that's great. That's more or less what I want. Now, that gets I think into the they think, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, and the, but then I think that's that's where the who is the they, but and also right. like what you know, if people become find out more about this policy or the policies actually, you know, actuate or or the, the policies are implemented in a particular way, you know, you might actually get some friction. And I think that's where a little bit of this notion is, is this what people really wanted kind of came from? I mean, I think that's a very,
1: that's very generous, but I agree with you.
0: You made a, well, I mean, you made, you made a point in there that was kind of embedded in all that that's worth bringing out, which is that you know, to take the, you know, this, the, the ban on abortion after six weeks which is a mm-hmm. law that was passed this session. But there's ambiguity in that. If we poll on that and say, do you support a ban on abortion after 6 weeks of pregnancy? We do in fact find significant support for that. Right. You know, which is virtually, you know, it was I have the numbers right here. Yeah. It was 49 support, 41
1: oppose overall, but it was report it was supported by 74% of Republicans, only opposed by
0: 18%. Right. And so part of the issue there, though, is that in a different abortion question, if we ask people, would you support an outright prohibition on abortion under any circumstances?
1: Yeah, majority would say no. And then if we ask- Support is less than
0: 20%, as I recall. And
1: that's if we talk about a prohibition. And then if we talk about whether basically, you know, there's a bunch of ways you can ask these questions just to be clear. But if you basically say, if you give people uh, an abortion question with an option of basically abortion should never be permitted, it's about- Ten to twelve percent of of all Texans, about nineteen percent of Republicans, so one in five, and that's the that's where the right. ambiguity lies. But but I think a lot of people are looking at that and saying, "You see, see that they did something that people don't want." Right. And I say, like, "Well, you gotta you gotta slow down a second here. Got to cool cool your jets, right? Because ultimately." you know, that it's in that friction that actually, you know, I think- A lot of politics takes
0: place. (laughs) A lot of
1: politics takes place. And ultimately, you know, for Republicans who've controlled the state for, you know, 20 years and have been passing conservative legislation for 20 years, ultimately, you know, we're kind of at a point in the, you know, the lifespan of the Republican party here and of the conservative dominance here where, you know, you're going to have to be pushing the outer bounds of a lot of policy areas. There's not a lot of areas of policy in Texas where. Conservative principles and priorities have not, you know, dominated the discussion for a while and have not acted. So ultimately, it's not like Texas Republicans are going to come in in twenty, you know, twenty-one into the legislative session and say, "Boy, nobody's done anything here to, you know, limit abortion." No, they've been limiting abortion for decades. So ultimately, you kind of get to this point. But the issue is, is that you know, you know, we always talk about sort of, you know, kind of passive support. And ultimately, you know, most Republicans are going to identify as pro-life. Republicans are the majority of party. There's generally, you know, we found polling pretty, you know, open acceptance of limiting abortion around the edges. But then we get into this area where this is the definitional piece where Republicans simply, you know, doing what they needed to do to uh, further kind of limit abortion or were they taking a step too far and outright banning it? It's always been the, you know, the right. supposition that once they go and like ban abortion, they're going to, there's going to be a backlash. But I think, you know, and take a, another step back. We haven't seen much of a backlash over anything here. Well,
0: and this is going to be, a, you know, this is a, a, a question moving forward. And again, on this particular issue, or that this particular policy and that particular legislation on the six-week ban, that's a six-week plus ban because of the dynamics in which a lot of women aren't going to know they're pregnant by the time they find out. It's going right. to be a de facto ban, you know, for a lot of people, or it's going gonna, it's gonna to get much closer to that. So the question, you know, will be what is the feedback on, you know, what is the feedback loop look like that? Or that's one question about that.
1: But I think, but I think the point that, you know, here is that the feedback loop, and this will kind of get to some of the other points here is, you know, the feedback loop from issue voters, from Republican primary voters who are very attuned to abortion policy is going to be Extremely positive. You know, if you're a, if you're someone who votes solely based on Second Amendment rights, the feedback, even though, again, there's ambiguity there yeah. too, right? Well, the feedback is going to be pretty positive and those groups are overrepresented. Well, and it, it also drivers. raises a
0: point that I raised at the outset here that I wanted to get to, which is the forum for that, you know, what we're kind of in a very dry way calling feedback, the forum for getting that feedback and the, the you know, wh- when the legislators are going to feel that the most and when they're most worried about that. Mm-hmm. for most of these Republican incumbents is going to be the primary election because they're not anticipating a lot of competition. So it le- it does lead to what, from the consideration of the universe of Texas voters, could be seen as oversteer, but it depends on where the focus is. Right? Yeah. I think you know, so. This,
1: this oversteer argument to me is interesting. I mean, I, I you know, I kinda of keep coming back to this notion of, you know, the Democrats came out and Well, I said the appearance of
0: oversteer. I mean
1: Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I'm not saying that you're saying this. I'm just talking about this general argument about the oversteer. And I mean, I mean, part of it is, you know, you can look at this two ways, which is, you know, it's an oversteer if you believe that the state is trending democratic. And there's reasons to think that, right? And I don't mean that it's democratic, but in the sense that it's you know, becoming the margins more competitive. have got gotten- it. It's becoming more competitive. And I think, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, a lot of people say, well, look at the demographics of Texas and look at where people are are living in these cities. You know, the urban centers are becoming bigger and bigger and growing faster and they're more diverse, et cetera, et cetera. And I would just, you know, say, yeah, but for all the crowing the Democrats have done, they didn't advance at all in the 2020 election. And also Texas is a place where 60% of the voting eligible population voted in the 2020 election. So, forty percent of you know the forty percent of the of the potential electorate, and a lot of the people that I think people outside the state think of as potentially you know revolting against some of this don't vote here. And Democrats haven't really you know presented any evidence that they are going you know, that they are good at or have any plan for turning these people out. So, if I'm a Republican and I'm sitting here saying we just keep winning, and also I think you know I mean you, this is kind of something we should talk about too, but looking at the national level where everything is just gridlocked into nothingness, I think it's odd not to expect the state to, especially the Republican state to deliver to their voters because they don't have an excuse not
0: to. Well yeah, I, I think you know expectations are, high, are you know, are high among particularly among mobilized Republicans. And again, I still think there's a little bit of an institutional piece there that whose expectations mm-hmm. right And so you know that that's a piece of this as well. No, the institutional stuff reinforces it, though, right? In the sense that
1: you know, we also have a more conservative uh, lieutenant governor than we had previously in terms of Dan Pat- David Dewhurst and Dan Patrick. We yeah. have more conservative speakers now than we had from the Strauss era.
0: So, what do you expect? So, let's you know, you mentioned you know the the sort of let's look let's look at it again now from sort of the outside in. This has been almost painfully inside out. Let's go to that from the outside in. Um, a second piece this week was Ron Brownstein's piece in the Atlantic. It's called Watch What's Happening in Red States. The subtitle, the, ex, the, the, the bullet is kind of in states where Republicans control the legislature, American life is rapidly changing. Now, he covers a lot of the territory and looks at not just Texas, but several similarly Republican states that have had you know similar experiences in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in terms of pushing legislation like the legislation we're talking about and, and in some other policy areas as well. You know, but it's interesting because, you know, he winds up in a very different place. Now, part of this is just focus is that he's thinking about, you know, a national terrain and and yeah. trying to be comparative here. But he also is, you know, I mean, I, you know, he ends the piece with something like a, a description of people's expectations that somehow, you know, once Trump was defeated and Donald Trump is no longer president. That these that these sort of conservative fires would burn less hot. I'm not sure if that's a straw man or not, but it's an interestingly different way of of looking at what happened and, and thinking about yeah. what the causality is and you know and where it's coming from, right? The, yeah. and, I, and I like the two pieces together because I think you know I mean I think they're both you know they're both onto something in their own way. Right. About what the dynamics are internally and what the dynamics are externally. And it's an interesting way of thinking about how national and state level politics kind of interact to read them in conjunction.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's sort of, I mean, there's sort of two reactions I have to that. You know, I mean, one is there's sort of a waiting for Godot aspect to the whole, you know, well, when are the moderate Republicans or the, you know, principled conservatives going to come in and say, hey, wait a second, this isn't the party. And the treat, you know, and the thing is, I mean, we sort of we experienced a little bit of this with the Tea Party rise and fall. You know, we would go and we'd ask the people in polling from kind of 2010 on, you know, whether we asked a question basically to identify Tea Party adherence yeah. or not. Doesn't matter how we did it. But so we would do this, and then you'd kind of go and we'd ask about the Tea Party influence. We'd say, Is Tea Party have too much too little or about the right amount of influence? And the most interesting thing out of that pair of questions that we asked repeatedly, I think, was that, you know, the majority of Republicans who we didn't identify as Tea Party Republicans, so we just say they're moderates, they're just non-Tea Party, whatever, but they're probably less, you know, extremely conservative, if nothing else. You know, when we asked that that influence question, they'd always say that the Tea Party was either, you know, had the right amount of influence or not enough. Right. It wasn't though there was, you know, that was where the, the center of gravity was. And we describe this often as like, you know, sort of passive support. And so I think it's important for people to remember that, you know, even you know these sort of you know let's call quote unquote moderate Republicans who don't necessarily fit the Trump mold, they probably agree with Trump Republicans on a lot more stuff than they don't. And that's kind of important to remember here. It's yeah. not like there's clearly not some block. But the other thing I'd say is you know the lesson maybe from 2020 and 2018, the combined lessons is that I'm not sure that Republicans are one scared of turnout as much as they used to be. I mean you know yeah. that's again a complicated a complicated discussion in the current environment. But ultimately you know higher turnout in Texas did not hurt them. And number two, I think the other piece of this is, you know, looking at sort of how the difficulties they had in 2018 that they didn't face in 2020, at least they maintained the status quo, is you're seeing Republicans in both Texas and other states trying to mobilize that Trump coalition for the next round. And ultimately, part of I think the Trump, you know, approach is ultimately the ends always justify the means and you take what you can get. And I think you're seeing a lot more of that and you're seeing, you know, that sort of style of governance And I think that's a calculated risk that I think Republicans are willing to take, especially going into redistricting. Well,
0: and I think especially in Texas, where, you know, as we noted before, the underlying politics that I think from the outside people think of as Trumpism or the Trump unleashed X, you know, the Trump unleashed forces, you know, we're always kind of there. Yeah. He was the entrepreneur of marshalling these forces. But he's also, you know, I mean, he... In the end, the Trump experience had the kind of impact I think you're talking to you're talking about in terms of both governance style and you know the aggravation of you know the forces of negative partisanship. Right. Mm-hmm. That is the idea that what really part of what defines you is not just what, and this is an interesting reflection I think on the fact that we think people are focusing on policy output that what they're really you know what they're really fundamentally interested in in a lot of ways is identifying themselves vis-a-vis what they're not, that is, or their negative view of what their opponents are. And I think that's one of the things that we saw really make manifest in this session that's been lurking in Texas and has been around, but is the idea that almost anything that you could identify as a democratic policy preference this time became something that was attacked with with great rigor And that drove a lot of the policy output. And it also drove the process in a way that I think a lot of people noticed. You know, we've talked about this, I think maybe on here or not, but... So there is an element in which, you know, negative party identification, that is the idea that parties are so, you know, identified by their negative impressions of the other party. That's one of the things that Trump tapped into without any guardrails at all. And I think you saw that happening... At various points internally during this legislative session where you had, we talk a lot about the different divisions like socially and, and factionally inside the Texas Mm -hmm. legislature. One -hmm. of the ones that was interesting that I think became more apparent this time was between those who felt like there was still a kind of ethic of cooperation and a functionality to cooperation between Mm -hmm. members of different parties and those who just felt like that was an inconvenience and were not interested in that, and it was and it was pretty apparent at different times on these most divisive bills that we've been talking about. It was very apparent during abort, abort, the abortion discussions on the on the floor, particularly in the House, but also in the Senate. And it was very apparent in the gun discussions. It was very apparent in the election discussions that there was almost like a sense from some of the sponsors of some of that legislation and some of the chairmen who are very much of a relatively newer generation of legislators, they're mostly more recently elected, mm-hmm. that they really weren't interested in what they almost seemed to take as the ritual of listening to the opposing arguments. It was mm-hmm. very much a kind of you hear somebody that somebody beat the back mic speaking and you you know sit at the back mic and a po- you know, to give the, ask questions of the person right. at the front mic, a sense of kind of, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Are you done yet? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if there was any moment that made me feel like there is something about that, those were the moments when I felt like this notion of the mood of, of what we might think of as the Trump impact was really evident. Now, Might that have happened without Trump? Probably it's happened in the past. There are people that are, that have always been like that, but it seemed much more prevalent this time. And that, and that is kind of driving, you know, and, and it is not just that it's also the duration of the time that one party has been basically dominating the agenda and the process Mm-hmm. you know there's nobody it's
1: also the vol- it's also the volume of the of the you know i would say difficult legislation that they had to deal with also
0: yeah i mean i think that's bad. probably a contributor right? you know but I, but i think there's definitely a sense that i'd have to go and look at it a little bit more because certainly some people that have been there for a long time have probably you know adjusted and adopted this attitude but i do think there's a certain kind of institutional socialization to the norms of the institution that are being again reinforced by these powerful outside forces.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I would add to that, you know, I mean, I think, and I don't, I know you're not, dis- you know, I mean, I think you're you're partially describing the Republican majority, but I think you know you could also make that description a little bit in terms of the the newer generation, older generation, but you could also see that on the Democratic side yeah, in terms yeah. of the approach of Democratic members at the back mic in terms of you know the whole like, hey, I just want to make your bill better. I know I don't like this bill, but this might help make it less bad kind of in the older generation to the sort of, you know, so like, are you aware that you're a racist or that this <laughs> is racist kind of some of the newer generation of, of democratic learners, but this is also taking place nationally too. I mean, I think one of the interesting things in all of this, going back to kind of the national perspective is there's a sort of focus on again these Republican States and the extent at which they're lurching further to the right on the one hand, but ultimately, you know, California is doing its own thing too. Right. Right. You know, I mean I mean, there is there is and this is sort of, I mean, again, to the extent that the national, you know, the federal government is incapable of moving anything because of a lot of reasons, you know, ultimately it is coming to state legislatures to deliver on policy goals for their voters. The only interest I mean, the interesting thing to be going forward that I'm still trying to like untangle here is, you know, does this work in a place like Texas and a place like Florida? I mean, those are sort of the two kind of that I would put together in the sense of, you know, these these very large, very diverse and I would say, in the case of Texas, most or more southern Florida, pretty much urban states. There's a tension here that you know we're kind of that is being papered over. Uh, you know, that's sort of curious and interesting in the sense that you know most states with large urban centers have Democratic control, and they're you know going in a completely different direction. And the question is, how long can you know the Republican state one kind of be hostile to cities on the one hand, but two, I mean, there's an what op- I've said this before, but there's an opportunity here. I think both in Florida and Texas to say this is what Republican governance looks like in a largely urban, At very diverse, urban very young state. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that there's anything about the session that makes you think, well, they did it this time. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that it will be interesting to see how that discussion moves forward. And I think there's a tension between the the position on economic development and the the view of the cities that is still pretty unresolved. There are probably opportunities there. There are opportunities for both parties I think if they can unpack that. So, all right. So I, you know, I I think is to to close this out, I'll be interested to see how this discussion moves forward in terms of our, everybody's view of what this is going to mean and what the, what the connections are going to be between what we saw going on inside the state, the forces inside, the forces outside the state and how they interact. So,
1: yeah. And the thing I'm looking most forward to looking like learning more about here is, is what, What the voters actually got out of this session. I mean, we follow this thing closely. We get up every day and we're reading clips and we're, you know, following Twitter, watching the stream. And, you know, we have kind of our impressions of this thing. But what I'm really curious about is how much, given the volume especially, how much of this got through to people? Did they find out something about what the legislature did in area A, B, or C? And did they have an evaluation of it? I'm, you know, I'm really curious to see, because that's really, I mean, ultimately all this speculation from us, from other people, it's kind of moot until we know actually what the voters kind of picked up from what happened. Yeah,
0: the key question is, you know, what got through to who? Yep. (laughs) You know, and and, and with how much intensity. So, Mm -hmm. okay, with that, this has been the second reading podcast for the week of June 7th. I want to thank Josh for being here. Thank our crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas. And we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.